Hello, I'm Patricia. This is Sound News broadcasting from the Old Man Studio in Church Street, Portadown. And please note, a magazine follows this recording. This production is for weekending Saturday the 21st of August. On behalf of everyone here on the Craigavon Talking Newspaper team, welcome to this week's programme. The stories making the headlines this week are from the Portadown Times, Police Step Up Patrols Following Incidents, and from the Lurgan Mail, Teen Denied Bail Over Stabbing Incident. Now it's over to Ken who brings you our first story. Police Step Up Patrols Following Incidents The PSNI has confirmed it is carrying out additional patrols in a Portadown Park in an attempt to tackle antisocial behaviour with the local councillor keen to ensure young people are not unfairly blamed. News of the increased police presence at Portadown People's Park comes following a social media post claiming two men were lying slumped at the entrance of a council building drinking beers at the same time as children were being collected from a summer scheme. The post also called for this problem to be addressed by the appropriate authorities. A spokesman for ABC Council said, Council is aware of the matter and is liaising with the PSNI, PCSP and other government agencies to resolve the issue. Council can confirm the matter has been reported to the PSNI. PSNI Neighbourhood Inspector Leslie Badger said antisocial behaviour is taken very seriously by the police and confirmed patrols are being increased in the area. I want to offer my reassurance to the local community, especially as we are still in the summer months, that antisocial behaviour is something that we take very seriously. We welcome any information from the public and local elected representatives to inform what we are doing as we work towards a solution. We would ask parents and guardians to speak to the young people and to be aware of where they are. Officers are carrying out additional patrols in the area and I would encourage anyone who witnesses any antisocial or criminal behaviour to report any incidents to us on the non-emergency number 101. However, Councillor Julie Flaherty has warned against blaming young people for these incidents and urged anyone with any information to contact the PSNI. Let's not blame the youth of today. This was not young people causing this, but young people at a summer scheme had to witness it, not once but twice this week, said Councillor Flaherty. This is just not acceptable. Our young people have been through so much these last 18 months and have been enjoying many summer schemes and the urban sports programme in the park. This has got to stop. There should be a no-tolerance approach to this across the council. The people own this park. The community owns this park and I am determined not to let the minority ruin it. Councillor Flaherty continued, A lot of money was spent on the People's Park, and I don't think it is getting the attention it deserves. The toilets are vandalised regularly, and really are not of an acceptable standard either. We cannot allow people to loiter and abuse our public spaces. If you see antisocial behaviour of this type, please alert the staff and call 101 immediately. And from the Lurgan Mail... A teenage girl inflicted life-changing injuries by stabbing her friend in the neck after they fell out over a boy, the High Court has heard. The accused, then aged 14, allegedly armed herself with a knife and attacked the other girl, aged 15, 
at the time at a pre-arranged meeting in Lurgan. The defendant, who cannot be identified, is also suspected of posting a photo of the victim on social media with the caption, one in the neck. Details emerged as she was refused bail on charges of causing grievous bodily harm with intent and possessing an offensive weapon during the confrontation at Dean's Walk in the town back in April 2019. Now aged 16, the accused has made admissions and is due to be sentenced later this month. Paramedics treated the victim at the scene of the attack before taking her to the hospital for life-saving surgery. Crown lawyer Breeze Gilmore disclosed how the stabbing left the teenager with nerve damage and scarring. Suffice to say, the injuries sustained were life-changing, she said. The defendant told the police the pair had been friends before falling out in the weeks leading up to the incident. She based the animosity on the fact that the victim is alleged to have kissed her boyfriend, Mrs Gilmore submitted, following an exchange of messages on Facebook and other social media. The Rota Chemist. During the week ahead, urgent prescriptions will be dispensed at the following addresses. Starting with Portadown. On Sunday the 22nd of August, the chemist is Cherry Mount of Church Street, open from 11am to 12 noon. Next week, from Monday the 23rd of August, the chemist is Boots of West Street, open until 7pm. There is no Ruta chemist in Portadown after Wednesday. Lurgan residents can collect prescribed medicines on Sunday the 22nd of August, the chemist is Partridge of High Street, open from 7 to 8 p.m. And next week, from Monday the 23rd of August, the chemist is McKegney of North Street, open until 7 p.m. There is no Rota chemist in Lurgan on Wednesday and none in either town on Saturday. Sunday opening applies in both towns for public holidays. Hi, cousin Granny, and it says... Judge grants man leave to challenge COVID cash denial. A county Armagh man on benefits has won High Court permission to challenge a Stormont department over the denial of a COVID-19 cash boost. The man taking the cease is not being named due to requests for anonymity. He was granted leave to seek a, a Judith review of the justification for being treated differently to universal credit claimants who received the extra 20 pounds per week. The case could, ha could have a significant financial impact for thousands of people across Northern Ireland, his lawyers have predicted. Universal credit payments were increased last year in a bid to help struggling families during the pandemic initially due to end on March 31st this year. The £20 a week uplift was instead extended for a further six months. However, the man taking legal action is currently in, in receipt of Employment Support Allowance, ESA, a so-called legacy benefit. Those receiving ESA in Northern Ireland are prevented from getting COVID cash boost, court was told. Proceedings have now been brought against the Department for Communities to challenge the legality of the arrangements. The men's legal team contend those on ESA and other legacy benefits, such as tax credit, should also be entitled to the extra money. Leave to apply 
for Judith-style review was granted based on an examination of arguments submitted. A judge listed the case for full hearing in November. Outside court, the man's legal representative, Chris Dorn of Key RW Law, said persons in receipt of legacy benefits, such as income-related ESA, are in the same position to those in receipt of universal credit, and therefore any difference in treatment requires justification by the Department for Communities. In the interest of fairness, parity, and equality, to avoid dis discrimination, KRW law want to see the same uplift, uplift afforded to them. Through bottle at wife's head. A 57-year-old man threw a vodka bottle at his wife's head and threatened to slash her throat, a court heard on Tuesday. Colin McElroy of Castleview Park in Rich Hill was given two years probation for his alcohol-fuelled outbursts. Belfast Magistrates Court heard police were contacted on April the 12th this year about a drunken man claiming he would kill his wife if she was not removed. Further threats were made by McElroy as officers investigated the incident. His wife told police that Colin had been drinking for days and that on April the 10th he threw an empty bottle of vodka at her, narrowly missing her head, a prosecution lawyer said. She claimed that he subjected her to verbal abuse and called her offensive names when drunk. He is alleged to have threatened to slash her throat if she did not leave, as he had told her, the prosecutor uh, added. McElroy admitted charges of common assault and threats to kill. His solicitor, his solicitor, Mark Campbell, argued that the defendant was the one who phoned police to seek his wife's removal. That might indicate that his intention was not to cause serious harm. Imposing two years probation, Deputy District Judge Anne Marshall included a requirement to complete a, a domestic abuse programme. COVID breach. Egypt spared heavier fine. An Egypt who should have known better than to breach COVID regulations by going to a 21st birthday party has been, has been handed a £250 fine after a deputy district judge ruled out a heavier penalty. Greg Avon, Magistrate's Court, heard that when, the pol that when police were called to a house party in Lurgan on 12th February this year, they found a total of 17 people in the 10 by bedroom property. A prosecuting law lawyer told the court that while 14 others were dealt with by way of fixed penalty, not penalty notices, 21-year-old 20 Ethan Mann was not eligibly for that disposal because of a previous no notice, adding that another reveller had been fined 1,000 pounds at the same court the previous week. Defence solicitor John Murphy revealed the house had been rented by a crowd of friends for a 21st birthday party but asked for credit as man from the Bay Ro Road in Larne had admitted, his, had admitted his guilt. In dealing with the case, Deputy District Judge Chris Holmes said the main considerations in sentencing were punishment and deterrence, adding that because the pandemic and vaccination had moved on since the offence. Deterrence was not an issue. Just because the executive put on enormous fines as a potential disposal, he said, 
That doesn't mean that they have to, to autom automatically be put on. The judge said man was an, was an Egypt. He should have known better. But I'm not fining him £1,000 for this, he added. Imposing a £250 fine, he told Mr. Murphy that his client should consider himself reasonably lucky. We're on to the photographs section. However, there are about 10 pages of photographs of various individuals um, being congratulated on getting their uh, various education awards. So we're going to summarise it. We'll start with Portadown College. Portadown College is celebrating another superb performance from pupils in this year's GCSE exams. Nine students gained a total of 10 A stars each and 38 pupils attained a combination of 10 A and 10 A star. Principal Ms Julian Gibbs said, As with our recent superb A-level performance, Portadown College is delighted to celebrate another year of excellent GS GCSE results with one-fifth of all grades awarded at A-star and 51% at A-star and A. It is most pleasing that 98% of all students secured seven or more A-star to grade C grades at GCSE. Moving on to Lurgan College. As Lurgan College took stock of outstanding results, across A-level, AS-level and GCSE. Its headmaster, Trevor Robinson, said, grades were fully reflective of the ability and aptitude of pupils he couldn't praise highly enough, and a ringing endorsement too of the Dixon plan. With an extremely high percentage achieving three or more A-levels at grade A-star to C, and an overall percentage of A-star to C grades well in excess of the Northern Ireland Grammar School average, the Year 14 class of 2021 had done themselves, their families, their school and their community proud, said Mr Robinson. Moving on to Craigavon Senior High. GCSE pupils at Craigavon Senior High School should feel justifiably proud after yet another year of success. This is the third consecutive year of improvement at the school throughout the incredibly hard work of students. Students and staff at the Senior High were celebrating outcomes with over 85% of students receiving at least 5 A-star five a to C grades. At Lismore Comprehensive, it was a record-breaking year for A-level students in the class of 2021, surpassing all previous records. More than one quarter of the students achieved straight A-star or A-grades. School principal Mrs Shona Lennon said the statistics in the key performance indicators saw a rise in each area with a highly commendable 11% increase in the category of pupils achieving three A-star to C grades. Local government. NIE offices at Cairn to be demolished. Northern Ireland Electricity offices at Cairn are set to be demolished and replaced with a new building following ABC Council's decision to grant planning permission to the project. Lodged on Thursday, November the 5th by Agent GM Design Associates Limited on behalf of NIE Networks Limited, the plans will see the demolition of the existing offices and associated mobile units with the erection of a replacement office building at 4 Annach Drive. The work will also include associated landscaping and the provision of a new car park. The application was approved under the scheme of delegation on July the 5th this year. Weeds issue prompts Lochnay's sale call. 
calls have been made for Loch Ney to, to be taken over by a local organization after complaints about excessive weeds and management issues. Owned by the Shaftesbury Estate, the freshwater loch, largest in the UK, is popular with fishermen and attracts visitors for water sports such as kayaking and paddle boarding. Recently, there have been a number of incidents in which boats have, have become entangled in weeds which have grown voraciously this past year. One lock user said a number of keel boats had been stuck at Kinego Marina and he had been unable to use his yacht due to dense weeds and shallow water. Council need urgent dredging at the marina, he said, and we need a management plan from agencies to keep higher water levels on Lochney or tourism will suffer. Shaftesbury needs to sell the lock to the gov government so Waterways Ireland can come on board to manage this waterway as they do in the whole of Ireland. A spokesperson for Armagh, Bambridge and Craigavon Council said the upkeep of Lochney is managed through a multi-agency approach, including the following councils, Armagh City, Bambridge and Craigavon, Mid-Ulster, Antrim and Newtown Abbey, and Lisburn and, and Castlereagh, as well as the Department for Infrastructure Rivers. This joint approach is required to deal with these concerns, and work is continuously ongoing to try and ensure areas of the lock are maintained as best as possible for all users. Like many waterways, Loch Ney has suffered environmental issues over the past 20 years at an, at an alarming rate. This includes the impact of zebra mussels which filter the water and increase weed growth, especially in marina bed areas. At present, there is no known treatment for zebra mussels. Council is responsible for the Kinego Bay area of the lock and only have permission to cut weeds in Kinego Marina. This happens approximately once a month. There is a process in place to install matting in the berths at Kinego over the winter months when the weed is naturally low and the water levels higher. This will help reduce weed growth. Council has no control over the water levels in the lock. This is managed by the DL rivers by means of floodgates at Tum. Council will continue to access the resources required to address any further environmental impact on its waterways, including Kinego Marina. A spokesperson for the Department for Infrastructure said any potential sale of Loch Ney is a matter for the Shaftesbury Estate. DL's statutory responsibilities relate only to the control of water levels on Loch Ney as far as climatic conditions allow and dredge the channel at Six Mile Water River. It also, it also maintains 47 navigational markers around the lock. And calls go out for action to tackle the huge driving test backlog. Pressure is mounting locally on Infrastructure Minister Nicola Mallon to up capacity at DVA Craigavon and ultimately resolve the driving test backlog. Upper Ban MLAs John O'Dowd and Jonathan Buckley each separately called this week for more action to tackle what Sinn Féin's Mr O'Dowd called the huge waiting list for tests at the Craigavon depot. 
there is a growing frustration among those struggling to get a driving test booking since the services resumed, said Mr O'Dowd. Driving instructors and learners across Upper Ban feel they are being left behind with little or no information on when more driving test appointments will be available. I'm calling on the Infrastructure Minister Nicola Mallon to ensure there is something done to tackle the backlog and increase driving test slots at the Craigavon depot to get people on the road. Chairman of the Assembly's Infrastructure Committee, the DUP's Mr Buckley, likewise called on the Minister to act promptly. Whilst the Department of Infrastructure have outlined their plan of action to address the backlog on driving tests, he said, it is clear that it is not working and questions remain unanswered. Mr Buckley said delays inevitable had far-reaching consequences for the economy, the individuals and their families. The Minister must place driving tests as an utmost priority and use every possible resource to address the backlog to give learners an opportunity to get on the road, he said. Protocol prevarication must end, says O'Dowd. British government brinkmanship and prevarication over the Northern Ireland Protocol must end in favour of seeking, so, uh, seeking solutions which support local businesses, workers, farmers and manufacturers. So said Sinn Féin's Upper Van MLA John O'Dowd as he reported traders across the constituency were telling him they needed real stability and certainty. To that end, he said, agreement between the British government and the EU on an SPS deal would make an immediate difference. The British government command paper in July formalised its objective to seek a renegotiation of the Irish protocol element of the withdrawal agreement with the European Union, said Mr O'Dowd. Whilst it stopped short of invoking Article 16, that option had not been removed from the table. This is the latest phase of British government brinkmanship. It is deeply corrosive for geopolitical relations and, British and Britain's reputation. A time, frame a time frame exists between now and late September to constructively resolve real and outstanding difficulties caused to the flow of trade by Brexit on an east-west basis, but political will is required to do so. The prevarication must end. The Sinn Féin MLA said his party would continue to promote the priorities of local businesses and the island economy from which workers, families and businesses in Upper Ban could prosper, adding, We will continue to ensure that the integrity of the Good Friday Agreement remains paramount. It is not only our international peace agreement, but also provides the framework for managing the relationship between the North of Ireland with the EU itself. The protocol protects the GFA and confers a special economic status on the North. It provides the North with an opportunity to attract new investment and employment opportunities and allows for a unique dual market trade access to the British and EU markets. It must be protected. Dental backlog solution needed. Upper Ban MLA Jonathan Buckley has called on the Health Minister to come up with a pragmatic solution to an ongoing backlog of dental appointments. For too long, said the DUP MLA, dental patients have faced delays to both routine appointments and urgent procedures. In June, the Department of Health revealed that 89 children were waiting longer than 13 weeks for urgent dental surgeries, while another 116 people were waiting for 
restorative dentistry surgery for more than a year. Further to urgent surgeries, I am just as concerned for the backlog to routine checkups and cleaning procedures. In the majority of cases, checkups are being continually deferred, while those in pain or requiring pressing treatment take precedence. I am regularly contacted by constituents who are eager to return for checkups before problems with their oral health arise, particularly for parents. I have also spoken to people who have offered only temporary fillings and procedures and have been awaiting a permanent solution since the beginning of the pandemic. I have now written to the health minister asking him to detail the, the department's current plans to address the backlog to dental procedures and checkups. Urgent action, including a meaningful pay rise, is needed to stem the tide of nurses reportedly leaving Northern Ireland's health trust in droves. That was the message this week from the SDLP's Dolores Kelly, on the foot of reports that the first seven months of this year saw 533 nurses resign, retire or undertake new health service roles, with many understood how to find agencies. The resignation of so many nurses spells disaster for the health service, already grappling with understaffing issues and increasing demand, said Upper Ban MLA. The service was battling with these concerns pre-pandemic, so this development situation at such a critical juncture could be catastrophic. I understand these figures include temporary staff and some individuals retiring. Many more reflect those leaving for more flexible and family-friendly employment options with agencies. Mrs Kelly said trust staff needed assurances management would improve stability in their posts. The survival of many independent care homes is also being threatened and underlines even further the need for a change in policy with regards to the use of agency staff, she said. Otherwise, we run the risk of costs for families with loved ones in residential care increasing. The agency bill to plug staff shortages last year soared to an eye-watering £245 million. We must bear in mind this spend was up to March 2020, pre-COVID, and the likelihood is that the figure for the last year is significantly higher. It's a completely unacceptable and unsustainable. In the absence of a policy change, pretty soon we will be in the ludicrous position whereby the spend on agency workers is more than that in the NHS staff. This also means less money being spent on the provision of essential health services for the wider population. Mrs Kelly said issues raised had highlighted poor pay and work conditions right across the system for the best part of a decade, adding, it should be a siren call for the health minister and the executive to take immediate steps to improve pay and work conditions, as well as putting a recruitment framework in place to address staff shortages. In reality, if they spent less on agency staff, then they could afford to pay NHS staff better. Action now is vital to stem the bleeding out of the health service's most vital resource, which is its staff. South Lake Centre prominent as council department five-time awards finalist. Armagh City, Banbridge and Craigavon Borough Council's Health and Recreation Department has been shortlisted as a finalist in five categories at this year's Association of Public Service Excellent Awards, APSE. 
Following an election process involving more than 320 applications, the department was selected as one of the top finalists in these categories. Best Health and Wellbeing Initiative for Sports Development, Girls Activities. Best Service Team of the Year for Parks, Grounds and Horticulture for Outdoor Leisure, Gosford Park. Best Housing, Regeneration or New Building Initiative for South Lake Leisure Centre. Best Efficiency and Transformation Initiative for South Lake Leisure Centre. And Best Service Team of the Year for Sports, Leisure and Cultural Services for South Lake Leisure Centre. This is a fantastic achievement for Council and a real credit to the teams of officers involved, said Lord Mayor Alderman Glenn Barr. Achieving UK's finalist level in five categories is a reflection of the hard work and dedication of officers across Health and Recreational Department in what has been a significantly challenging year for the leisure industry. It's fantastic to see UK recognition for everyone involved who work diligently to ensure that our local leisure facilities and services are maintained and delivered to an exceptional standard. APSE is an organisation dedicated to promoting excellence in the delivery of frontline services to local communities around the UK. The award ceremony will take place in Birmingham on September the 9th. Deaths in the community. David Christopher McWilliams, 8th of August 2021. Dearly loved husband of Patricia, much loved daddy of Andrea, Judith and Leanne, and sons-in-law. Robert Marshall Bertie Neal, 15th of August 2021. Suddenly at home, beloved husband of Avril, 7 Cherryville Road, Birches, Portadown, and dear father of Margaret, Georgina, Marshall, Judith and Millie, interred in Tartarahan Parish Church on Tuesday the 17th. George Robinson, passed away peacefully at home 9th of August 2021, dearly loved brother who will be sadly missed by Bobby, Joey, Anne, Barbara and Jim. The funeral on Monday of former Donna Cloney pub owner and down GAA legend James McCartan took place at St Mary's Church, Burren, where the number of mourners was restricted due to coronavirus regulations. Aged in his mid-80s, the down forward and double All-Ireland winner, whose brother Dan played alongside him and whose son James went on to captain and coach the county side, passed away peacefully on Saturday at his Maybridge home. Among the mourners was GAA President Larry McCarthy. I've got an advert here from 2J's International Fashions. It has a massive clearance from 70% off all stock and it starts this week. The telephone number is 028-3832-6911 and it's found in Robert Street, Lurgan, BT66 8BE. Getting back to normal with a 99p sale at Gordon's Chemist. Gordon's Chemist are hosting another 99p sale with a branch in Portadown. With 54 stores across Northern Ireland, Gordon's have a store near you. Find the biggest brands for less on the shelves at Gordon's Chemist with their new 99p sale ending Saturday, September 4th. 
And moving on to sport, Loch Golf Football Club has announced an exciting partnership with English EFL Championship team Huddersfield Town Football Club. Six representatives of Loch Golf Football Club and Loch Golf Youth were invited to Huddersfield Town on Tuesday, of, uh, August the 17th, to sign the formal agreement, meet key staff and be guests at the first team game versus Preston at the John Smith Stadium. In what will be a first of such a working relationship in the Irish League, this partnership will have significant benefits to both clubs, particularly in the area of youth development. The partnership is massive for Lochall and especially Lochall youth. This is more than an affiliation, but rather a working relationship that involves youth players right up to the first team. David Johnson, the Lochall's youth development manager, commented, It is hard to overstate just how significant this development is. Golf news. The ladies' branch of Tandrigay pled for lady captain Margaret Kerr's prize on Saturday, with more than 50 ladies competing for the annual coveted first prize. The overall winner on the day was Helen Taylor, who continued her good form after winning Mr Captain's prize to the ladies last week. Helen scored 45 points off her new handicap of 28. In second place was Anne Hall, who scored 41 points. Third prize prize was won by Sarah Jo Loney, who had the best of the 39 points returned. Marie McArdle, also with 39 points, finished in fourth place, and Lorraine Grimley won fifth prize, also with 39 points. The past lady captain prize was won by Vera Brady, with 36 points, and the committee prize was won by lady vice-captain Frances Clydesdale, with 37 points. The Golden Girls prize was won by Margaret Clochan, with 34 points. Diane Hamill won the front nine prize with 21 points and Lynn Hughes won the back nine prize with 19 points. Laverne Saunders won the longest drive prize and Susie Lau won the closest to the pin prize. Ladies' captain's son Ryan won the visitor's prize. The men's branch pled for ladies' captain's prize to the men during the week and Robert McGarrity won the prize. The juniors pled for ladies' captain's prize last Tuesday and the 18-hole winner was Ellie Barnett, who, like Helen, also won Mr. Captain's Prize to the juniors last week. Ellie scored 39 points. The nine-hole winner was Tim Hamilton and the four-hole prize went to Annabella Johnson. Motocross Edmunds race, race crashes. Stuart Edmonds finished fifth overall at the Penula Timmet round of the MX Nationals and at Landrake. The Dublin Dubliner powered the Epico Husqvarna to a brilliant third in the opening moto behind overall winner Harry Cullis. But a few issues in race two meant he had to settle, settle for tenth. And still with motocross, Colin Turkington claimed his 58th British touring car victory at Knock Hill in Scotland on Sunday to revive his title hopes. The Northern Ireland driver converted Saturday's pole position into a stunning lights-to-flag triumph, collecting maximum points in race one in the team's BMW with the fastest lap to boot. 
It was also the 100th win for the Surrey-based team and Turkington then returned to the podium again with a second place in race two. His unbeatable 49-point haul for the weekend has launched him up the leaderboard with a four-time champion climbing back into the top three. Cricket news. Warringstown put themselves in pole position to win another Robinson Services Premier League title after victories over Woodvale and North Down at the weekend. The two wins were different in nature. A more fighting, gritty display needed on a seamer-friendly wicket at Ballygamartin Road on Saturday, a tough test the villagers came through after being reduced to 48 for three in the first innings. Graham Hume, 42, top scored as they pushed their way up to 182 all out, and it was a South African all-rounder that helped put Woodville in all sorts of trouble as they went from 17 for none to 17 for three in a rain-affected contest. Ruhan Pretorius, who scored 141 from 64 balls against Carrick Fergus on Thursday evening, was again in the runs, striking 75 before he was the seventh wicket to fall. And with his dismissal, Warringstown knew they had all but sealed the four points, eventually winning by 16 runs. Annabelle comes to the fore as Curtis Ch Cup clash looms. Lurgan golfer selected for Team Great Britain and Ireland squad to face off against the US. Lurgan golfer Annabelle Wilson has been selected for the Team Great Britain and Ireland squad headed to the Curtis Cup this month. Annabelle, 20 years old, ranked world amateur number 75, has been chosen as one of eight players to represent Great Britain and Ireland as they face off against their US counterparts in Conway, Wales. Annabelle has been a shining star in women's golf in recent years, having won the 2019 Irish close title, represented Ireland for the European Ladies Team Championship and the home internationals and secured Three top finishes in American college tournaments this year. PGA golf co coach Peter Martin said, Annabelle is an incredibly talented golfer and the whole team at Colin Glen is thrilled to see her gaining the recognition she deserves. And uh, over to GAA, hundreds of Armagh school children will contest matches over the next two weekends. That's August the 21st and 28th. In the battle for the John West Fila County Honours. Camogie and hurling take centre stage this weekend with the football competitions running on August the 28th. Clubs nationwide will showcase the GAA stars of the future as they battle it out for the chance to play at Croke Park in October. Armagh's John West FILA finals will be staged at several venues across the county. Organisers of the 2021 FILA have honoured their commitment that no child would be left behind this year after the pandemic caused the cancellation of the 2020 festival. This year's event is being run on a county basis with the age grade moving to under 15s. Irish League News. On 13 times across 13 seasons, Aaron Moffat took centre stage for Dollingstown as captain, lifting silverware. Although the first man in club colours to get his hands on a trophy thanks to the skipper's armband, it was always in celebration of the collective achievement. But the 34-year-old centre-back recently stood in the spotlight for the final time and first in honour of his individual contribution, following a decision to retire after over a decade at the heart of the Dolly Bird's defence. 
Moffat's hometown club, Portadown, made a first appearance at Planters Park for the friendly fixture that served as part of the two Irish League clubs' pre-season preparations, but significantly offered fans, friends and family a chance to recognise the efforts of a man so central to Dollingstown's progress. Moffat walks away from the game boasting a 14-strong medal collection in total that includes a clean sweep of the major Mid-Ulster League honours alongside Bob Ratcliffe Cup and Intermediate Cup glory since joining Dollingstown in 2008. A guard of honour, pre-match presentation and standing ovation as he left the Planters Park pitch for the final time proved a fitting finale to one of the most decorated and respected careers across intermediate football. Although uncomfortable with the fanfare, given a reputation built on sacrifice for the team, Moffat was appreciative of the opportunity to thank those so supportive of his career, plus raise some welcome funds. I got some general news here, and it says, MP joins charity walk in memory of Drew Nelson. Upper band MP Carla Lockhart recently joined a fundraiser for the Drew Nelson Legacy Project. The upper band MP joined three orange men on a 38-mile charity walk from Sloan's House in Loggall to Schomburg House in Belfast. Got a little advert here which may not be of interest to the majority of our listeners, but they may have children or grandchildren who would be interested. Apparently, Dairies Limited, an internationally recognised manufacturer, supplier of high-quality design-led contract and wholesale furniture, uh, who are market leaders, they have an exciting opportunity for apprentice upholsterers. So if anybody's interested in becoming an upholsterer, you'll be given first-hand on-job training and you have to send your email to carla at dairies.com. Dollingstown to mark the Northern Ireland centenary with a street party. The village of Dollingstown will celebrate the centenary of Northern Ireland with a special event this weekend. A street party is being organised by the Dollingstown Ulster Scots Cultural and Heritage Society and taking place at Alfred Terrace from 2 to 5pm on Saturday, August the 21st. The centenary party will feature bouncy castles, fun and games, colouring competitions and a quiz for adults. Also featured will be a cavalcade of vintage cars and tractors, plus a display of World War II vehicles. The soundtrack for the day will be a selection of music from the last 100 years. Admission is free and all welcome. Couple getting set for an epic charity cycle. Members of Portadown Cycling Club PCC have been going the extra mile for charity with one couple planning a lengthy journey as a fundraiser. Robert and Stephanie Watson are planning a mammoth trip which will take them the length of Ireland next month. They'll be taking part in the Mallon to Mithen Head Challenge which takes them and other hardy souls from the tip to toe of Ireland in aid of Marie Curie. This is a vital fundraiser for the charity which was cancelled last year but which will take place this year from 6th to 12th September. South Lake Bold Moves Welcomed South Lake Leisure Centre Management has been applauded for bold moves to deal with what have been described as teething issues. As of Tuesday past, August 17th, 
the pre-booking system for the main pool introduced as COVID-19 restrictions eased and the new leisure centre was able to officially open is no more and social distancing has been reduced to one metre. In recent weeks, councillors revealed they had been receiving what one called a barrage of complaints about the multi-million pound centre. It's understood people complained of being unable to book slots at the pool as it had been fully booked on the online app, while at the same time many of those who had booked slots didn't turn up, leaving empty lanes. Sinn Féin's councillor Catherine Nelson welcomed the measures, having been among councillors who recently met senior council officers to outline issues reported by the public, including, she said, the booking system, capacity and some issues externally at the centre. We have agreed to move to one metre social distancing in the changing rooms and of, as of August the 17th, the booking system will be removed for the main pool so people can turn up on the day, she said. If this works, we will look at a similar system for the gym. Renewed call for skate park following Olympic, Olympic success. A Portadown councillor has called on Armagh City, Banbridge and Craigavon Borough finally deliver a skate and scootering park for the town's young people. Councillor Julie Flaherty called on council to get moving on the proposal following, following the, the success of skateboarding at the recent Tokyo Olympics. In March, Councillor Flaherty had, had asked council officers to explore the possibility of providing a skate park in the local area so the young people did not have have to to travel further afield to enjoy their passion. By the end of March, Councillor Flaherty told a monthly me meeting of the local authority that the young people were delighted their voices were being heard. Now five months later and following the Olympic bronze medal winning performance from 13-year-old skateboarding sensation Sky Brown in the Tokyo Olympics, the WP councillor is calling on the Council to get its, its skates on. The bravery of UDR soldiers should be remembered, Upper Ban MLA and UUP leader Doug Beatty has said. His comments come on the 50th anniversary recently of the first murder of one of the regiment's members. Half a century after the killing of 22-year-old Winston Donnell, the first UDR soldier murdered during the Troubles, Mr Beatty described the occasion as an appropriate time to stop and remember the tens of thousands of men and women in the UDR who served their country with bravery and distinction. He continued, 197 UDR members were murdered, 61 former members were murdered after they left the regiment, and a further six died after the formation of the Royal Irish Regiment. Thousands more lived with the physical and mental injuries of their service. Winston Donald's name may not be well recognised by the majority of people in Northern Ireland, but he epitomised the bravery of local men and women who donned a uniform to serve and protect their communities. Increase of violence in the home demands urgent action, says MLA. The SDLP's Dolores Kelly has called for more robust measures to protect children from domestic violence and abuse. The Upper Ban MLA's call follows NSPCC warnings that the impact of lockdown has heightened the risk of abuse. The number of calls to the NSPCC helpline has increased, while the charity Refuge has similarly reported the average weekly number of contacts to its helpline has increased by 77%. 
The past 18 months have taken their toll in practically all aspects of daily life, said Mrs Kelly. The spotlight has largely focused, understandably, on frontline services in the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. However, as recent experiences have shown, there is another more insidious pandemic that has gripped far too many communities. The abuse of children has increased markedly since the first COVID lockdown. The first executive had a fund for children and young people. We need to be bold and think about similar initiatives if we are to tackle the root causes of abuse and protect children in our communities. Lurgan Tesco customers thanked for help with children children's meals. Lurgan Tesco customers have enabled thousands of meals to be donated to children living in food insecurity. In recent weeks, Tesco has given a donation for every piece of fruit and vegetable purchased across all its stores to provide food that its partner fair share will redistribute to children's charities. More than 5,000 charities across the country will now be given food to help the 2.3 million UK children living in food insecurity. Tesco has been working with Fair Share since 2016 and to date has redistributed more than 120 million meals of food to charities and community groups across the UK. Fair Share supports frontline charities and community groups working with children from summer, summer holiday clubs and breakfast clubs to community kitchens and groups which supply f- food parcels to, th- to those facing food insecurity. Fair Share CEO Lindsay Boswell, CBE, said the food would make, would make a real difference to frontline charities working with children and thanked Tesco customers for their support. As the first of a number of planned semi-permanent speed indicator devices were set up in the area by the Police and Community Safety Partnership, Lurgan Councillor Peter Lavery said he hoped they would help encourage drivers to slow down. In all, 11 of the devices are to service some 20 locations with some relocated every few months. Among the first to be deployed were devices at Castor Bay Road near Tannamore Primary School, New Forge Road, Marilyn, and Banbridge Road, Waringstown. These devices have been long lobbied for by the local community and elected representatives, said Alliances, Mr Lavery, so hopefully they will help encourage drivers to reduce their speed. The data collected from the devices will also be able to be used as an evidence base for further road safety improvements. It's also planned that a device will be set up on Francis Street in the vicinity of St Francis Primary School. This will happen in about two or three months' time when a device will be related rotated rather to this location. Council gives green light to Tandrigi Works. Members of Arma City, Banbridge and Craigavon Borough Council's planning committee have approved a planning application that will see public realm improvements made in Tandrigi. Submitted by agent GM Design Associates on behalf of Council, the application will see public realm improvement work including the installation of new safety railings, new handrails, new timber seating, litter bins, upgraded surfacing and paving, and upgrades to the existing stone boundary wall at lands east of Tato Castle on Church Street. A report presented to members of the committee notes the area in question is known locally as the Mall, 
and is a walkway elevated from Church Street and accessed by steps to the north and south of the site. It is, noticed, it, it is noted the surface of the walkway is tarmac but has deteriorated and the report also highlights the fact that there are currently no railings along this walkway except at the steps at the northern side of the site. Approval has been granted to alter the height of the wall of Tato Castle from 1.1 metres to 2.8 metres using local basalt which will match the existing walls. A new section of the wall will be set back to highlight the difference between the old and new elements. The new handrails will be 40 millimetres in diameter and will be galvanised with a black painted finish. The new surface is to be resin bound with an aggregate of between 1 and 3 millimetres and will be golden quartz in colour while the existing seating will be replaced with traditional style benches and bins. Arma City, Banbridge and Coogabin Borough Council has confirmed its investigating measures it can take to ensure a portadown changing places toilet will no longer require 24 hours notice to ensure the facility can be used. At present, those who wish to use the changing places toilet at Portadown People's Park are required to notify council 24 hours before they intend to use the facility, a situation a local council has described as farcical. Changing places toilets are designed so that they are completely accessible and provide sufficient space and equipment for people who are not able to use the toilet independently. Describing the situation at the park, a concerned parent, Zoe McCulloch, said, it's unacceptable. On a recent trip to the park, we discovered the Changing Places facility is now inaccessible. To gain access, you must phone 24 hours in advance so someone can open the doors for you. This means a child, young person or adult will have to know a day in advance. If only it was that easy to know when my child was going to need changed. The need to notify someone of the intent to use the facility 24 hours beforehand renders it not fit for purpose, according to Councillor Flaherty, as it's out of the question to ask anyone to book in advance to use such a facility. It is unfortunate that this had to be pointed out before suitable action to rectify the situation is undertaken. However, she added, she was pleased to see plans for the new access to be installed are being worked on. I am pleased to see work progressing at a pace to put in place what I believe to be the only solution, an external radar key access door. This will put an end to this farcical arrangement and ensure that this park, which belongs to us all, is truly inclusive. Open Farm Business Venture at Blackbury Hill Guildford couple Harry and Mary McGaffin have just completed a major investment programme at their Blackbury Hill farm to provide the public with a farm experience plus. The husband and wife team's love of animals has led to a new open farm business venture designed to provide visitors with an informative experience that's private, relaxing and a little bit different. The couple scheme at their Bally McCanallan Road Farm has been set up as an hour-long tour. Outbuildings have been renovated, a new courtyard created along with animal housing units and a piece of wasteland has been converted into an entrance walkway. The tour leads to the courtyard, then a fluffy area, and on to more traditional farm animals. There's also an aviary section, a reptile house, and a garden area. An online booking system is currently under construction. We have now come to the end of our recording for this week. Our thanks to the team of volunteers who edited and recorded 
and to Michael's for collecting the Porter Down Times and Lurgan Mail for us and to Presbyterian Church for the use of the studio. Editing this week was William and he also stayed on to be our technician. Reading with me this week were Ken and Nathan. From the newsroom at the Old Man's, this is Patricia signing off. Thank you for spending time with us. All our good wishes for the week ahead. Our team will be back with you in four weeks' time. Please remember, a magazine follows this recording. And an additional little note here. Any week you do not receive a wallet, it may be because we have no more labels. So if you're missing a wallet some week, please check all your little hidey holes and safe places and look for their wallets and return them to us and we will then restore the service. Sound News is a Craigavon Talking Newspaper production. Hello everybody, my name's Heather uh, and we've got Retha with us and of course we've got John who is our regular engineer, shall we call you John? Does all the technical stuff. So anyway, it's good to have your company um, and a few minutes, the August 2021 edition of Sounds Friendly Talking Magazine from the ladies of Portadown Business Professional Women's Club and Portadown Sir Optimus International. And we're coming to you from the heart of Portadown with assistance from our many volunteers at the Old Man's Studio, Church Street. You're listening to Craig Avon Talking Newspaper, a registered charity with over 40 local volunteers who help out every month. And we are delighted to be back in the studio for the first time since March and 2020. Yeah. And And we're hoping that it'll be a monthly thing. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And we'll see how things go. So it's good to have your company. Yes, it is indeed. Before we start, a reminder of some housekeeping. Having listened to our news and magazine, you're reminded to promptly return the recording you're listening to now in the padded envelope provided with it. Please enclose any comments about the service our volunteers provide in writing alongside the USB pen drive. And of course, to guarantee a prompt delivery of your next edition, please remember to reverse the address label before setting off to the post office. This week we feature Paul Paul Simon, Simon, (laughs) um, the ultimate collection, and no greater performer is there, um, who's going to be obviously our song of the week, and of course some extracts from recent UK and Irish newspapers, magazines, and much, much more. I can tell you've got diamonds on the soles of your shoes. (laughs) I have heard him sing that live. She's a rich girl, she don't try to hide it Diamonds on the soles of her shoes He's a poor boy, empty as a pocket 
Empty as a pocket with nothing to lose. Sing ta na na, ta na na na. She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Ta na na, ta na na na. She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Diamonds on the soles of her shoes. I uh, was having coffee with a friend in one of the local hotels the other Friday, like a Friday week ago, and the receptionist handed me the Belfast Telegraph. Um, so it was good to actually have know what the weekend television was that weekend. But there was a little interesting article in it, um, and it says, Drinking it in Gary Law. Um, this is a story about um, Wayne, a guy called Wayne. He's called a ginger man, and you'll find out why. And his business sprang from his exploits in the family kitchen at age 10. It was the early autumn of 1999, and for 23-year-old Wayne Adair, it was end of another good summer at Papa Capaldi's ice cream parlour on Queen's Parade in Bangor. Papa, uh, Papa Capaldi was something of an institution in the town, but when the days grew colder and the nights longer, trade just melted away. Business was good in summer, but winters were always a struggle, said Wayne, as he looked back. He had gone into the ice cream business partly because his family was already in the trade. The Adairs had founded Riata Ice Cream in East Belfast and christened it by spelling their name backwards. Wayne, however, was looking for something different to carry him through the winter, and he began to cast his mind back to when he was aged 10 or 11 and made his own ginger wine at Christmas. It became a bit of a tradition in the, in the family he remembers. Mum gave me this recipe that she had been given by her mother. I mixed it up and filled old milk bottles, jars, anything that came to hand. Um, when other members of the family tasted it, they would be all nostalgic about Christmas of old and tell me how it brought back fond memories. It was so popular, I kept on making it every Christmas. My mother used to make ginger wine every Christmas. Uh, yeah. She used to get a uh, bottle of the ginger wine essence from Mason's chem Chemist. Talk. Yeah. <laughs> Wayne has been given the opportunity to take part in a Christmas craft fair being organised at St George's Market in the winter of 1999. And so he thought he'd better go and sell his ginger wine. Um, I fitted out a room at the back of the ice cream parlour and began mixing ginger cordial. I bought 200 bottles, which were sealed with a cork and got labels designed, and I filled each bottle with a jug and funnel, plunked a cork on it and stuck label on with plastic. I called it Papa Af Papa's after the ice cream parlour and at St George's Market, I sold the lot. It seemed like people couldn't get enough of it, but it was, Christmas, but it was a Christmas thing, so I parked it in January and only started thinking about it again in September. The following year, I sold over six, sold about 600 to 800 bottles at Christmas, and the year after that, I sold about 1,000. But at that stage, I still thought of it as just something to get me through the winter. After about three years of sales, Wayne rebranded the cordial, switched to a bottle with a screw cap, ordered self-adhesive labels, and threw out the print stick. I did the Christmas market at St George's until about 2004, he says. Then the City Council expanded the market to run every Saturday and when the new markets were launched, I sold 100 bottles on my first day. Now, I was a serious, now it was a serious business and Wayne began to consider expanding. 
I started to think about the other flavours like clove, cloudy lemonade and spiced winterberry, he says. My business season is still Christmas and we now supply Christmas markets in Glasgow, Belfast and Galway. But I also do a lot of business at fairs and markets throughout the year. Wayne no longer has the ice cream parlour and production of Pappas has moved to a unit off York Road in Belfast, but it's small scale and hands-on. We make 300 bottles in a batch um, and a small gravity filler fills just three bottles at a time, he says. Now there are eight flavours um, and around 60 stockists across Northern Ireland. Some countries, um, some counties even, have their own favourites. For instance, for Manor, they love the clove cordial. In Armagh, it's ginger, while in Belfast goes for cloudy lemonade. After about eight or nine years of making and selling cordials, Wayne came across the fact that ginger ale was invented in Belfast in the 1850s and decided to bring production back to the city by creating his own version. I started by trying to use the ginger cordial as the basis, but that didn't really work, he says. In the end, it took about three years to get the recipe right, and in 2018, I got what I was looking for. A slightly darker ginger ale with a touch of lime. My version is a little bit more fairy. The Papa's brand didn't seem right for the new ginger ale, so Wayne looked across for a new name, and when he learnt that the Queen's Bridge in Belfast was formerly known as the Long Bridge, he knew he'd found it. The Longbridge Drinks Company now makes Belfast ginger ale in small batches along with tonic water and raspberry and rose mixer. Now aged 44, Wynne has been producing his cordials for nearly 22 years and they are enjoyed all over Northern Ireland. And that 10-year-old boy who makes his first batch in the family kitchen all those Christmases ago could hardly have imagined it. And I think I must try and find some of this because it sounds rather lovely. Yeah, well I can remember. Have you tried it? Uh, no, but I can tell you when you, you do make it, you put an awful lot of sugar in it. You know, by the standards, uh huh. Oh, it's a huge amount. I mean, it might be two bags of sugar in, uh, in a you know Kenwood Chef mixing bowl. It's absolutely, but you can reduce it. Um, I think probably by today's standards, we would expect it to be a bit less. I used to make it and then give it to people at Christmas, and then I stopped doing it. And then people started pulling bottles out that I'd given them 10 years ago and they hadn't drank it. They were sitting in the bottom of their kitchen cupboard or whatever. But uh, one of those things. But but, interesting wee story, I thought, but something I didn't know. Uh-huh. I've, tried, I've tried the moulds, the spice one. Uh-huh. I liked it, but I wouldn't be a ginger fan. But some of those other ones, I quite mm-hmm. think I'd quite like. Yeah. Oh no. I mean, it's nice to see a local company mm-hmm. doing well. Although, I mean, it's always easy to find fault. You know, is he using spring water? Or a friend of mine who's sick and is a fuss pot, um, likes his bottled water, and at the minute he mountain. Oh, the name has gone out of my head. Scottish Spring, Highland Spring is the best one he makes tea with. And I have to say it is nice. It's, in my opinion, it's the best one. And there's been supply issues with it in home bargains. So I got River Rock for him. And of course, he looked it up on the internet. And River Rock is just tap water bottled up. <laughs> so, it's a bit of a con the co- then. Hmm? A bit of a con. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you can always say that, you know, I mean, I had friends who moved into new houses and the water wasn't right and they did, they were buying 
tap water for gen they're buying tap water they're buying bottled water for genuine reasons mm. but it's you know you sort of hope that the brown water that's coming out of your tap will go away but the taste of water is different because i remember um drinking water down in fermanagh uh-huh. and it's really really peaty yeah and you know it wouldn't be to everybody's taste mm-hmm. well i do think um if you can be bothered with it the highland spring from supermarket um if you boil it for making tea and have tea leaves, there is definitely a difference in it. Um, but I'm t- he sort of started looking at it. The Ballyduggan would be another brand, but it is spring water. But I think if you're going to the bother of buying bottled water, it should be... You, you like to think that spring water is pure in some way, mm-hmm. but that's taking you completely away from ginger wine. <laughs> Not to worry. <laughs> so... Do you want to read your next item then? Yeah. I was uh, interested to hear this. Um, the first time in its 182 year history, women are going to be allowed to wear trousers at the Henley Royal Regatta. The Oxfordshire-based rowing event has updated its, its dress code for the stewards' enclosures so women can wear jackets or blazers with trousers or trouser suits as well as jumpsuits and collots, but only if the hemlines fall below the knee. The the change comes after a petition launched by an Oxford student and member of the University Women's Boat Club, Georgina Grant, garnered 1,683 signatures, excluding discriminatory and sexist dress codes are rife and we need to change this. She argued Sir Steve Redgrave, chairman of the regatta, told the, the Telegraph it was an evolution, not re- revolution, which he was very much in favour of. Even though women wearing pants is hardly scandalous as today as it once was, the, the update to the regatta's dress code is a big step for such a traditional event. The history of ladies in trou- trousers has so- certainly come a long way. Our short history focuses on the Western world. There are examples of women wearing trousers in ancient China and the Ottoman Empire dating back centuries. During the 19th centuries, women in the US and UK were expected to wear big billowing skirts. They were a sign of femininity and conservatism as they didn't show off the shape of ladies' legs. Contrast this to men wearing trousers which are easier to move around in. This isn't to say women didn't wear trousers at all. Sometimes they were worn for horse riding, but even then they were hidden underneath skirts. That's how taboo the style was. In the mid-1800s, activist Amelia Bloomer discovered Turkish-style pantaloons and advocated for women to wear those loose tr- these loose trousers, which famously became known as bloomers, though, although they were frowned upon by wider society. As the decades progressed, there were a few other examples of women wearing the trousers, most notably during the world wars when women took on traditional male jobs. However, it was definitely not the norm and ladies were still expected to stick to skirts. After the First World War, there were a few examples of famous women donning pants. Hollywood stars such as Marlene Dietrich and Catherine Hepburn were known for their androgynous style in the 1930s. While later on, Audrey Hepburn made a splash in cropped slacks in the, the 1957 film Funny Face. However, treasures were, were by no means mainstream attire for women in the early to mid-20th century and it would say, still be something of a shock to see ladies wearing them. 
There was a shift in consciousness in the late 1950s with the explosion of unpopularity of pre-pants. But trousers really had a breakthrough in the 1960s and 70s thanks to the women's liberation movement. Women were calling for equal rights at home, at work and even in their wardrobes. This meant breaking free, free from the structures placed on them by society and that included the pressure to wear skirts and behave in a way that was considered feminine and demure. Designer Yves Saint Laurent helped bring this even further into the mainstream with Le Smoking, a tuxedo debut, debuted in 1966 specifically tailored to women's bodies. The fact the Henley Regatta's dress code is now is only changing now suggests there's still a certain amount of stigma attached to ladies wearing trousers. Incredibly, a 200-year-old ban on women wearing trousers in France, France was only overturned in 2013. Of course, it hadn't been strictly policed, but it was still there. Plenty of schools still enforce a skirts-only uniform for girls and female flight attendants on Virgin Atlantic couldn't wear trousers until 2019. However, the way we see fashion is slowly shifting. There's more a more androgynous approach to style, both on the red carpet and in the streets, meaning pants aren't nearly as taboo as they once were. It's no longer just about allowing women to wear trousers, it's about let it, letting anybody wear whatever they want, free of shame or judgement. And now some news stories uh, that you may have missed over the last... 18 months from the Daily Dafty. My wife can't stop singing Tom Jones' Delilah, claims a worried husband. She asked her doctor if it was common. He said it's not unusual. <laughs> uh, it's with great sadness that I have to mention the loss of a few local businesses uh, as a result of the COVID-19. A local bra manufacturer has gone bust. A submarine company has gone down under. A manufacturer of food blenders has gone into liquidation. A dog kennel has had to call in the retrievers. And a company supplying paper for the origami enthusiasts has folded. The local strip club has gone blank up. Interflora is pruning its business and Dino Rod has gone down the drain. The saddest one, though, is the ice cream van man found dead, covered in nuts and raspberry sauce. He couldn't take it anymore, so he topped himself. There's some breaking news. John Travolta has been hospitalised for suspected COVID-19, but doctors now confirm that it was only Saturday night fever and they assure everyone that he is staying alive. Apparently he had chills and they were multiplying. Then there's a lady here who looks very cross. She said, I never wanted to believe my husband was stealing from his job as a road worker, but when I came home, all the road signs were there. So now back to Heather. <laughs> Right. Um, I don't know whether um, any of you have been or are readers and whether you like crime uh, stories. Um, but I first came across this lady, a lady called Val McDermott, um, watching Question Time. Um, she was a regular contributor there. Um, she does live in Scotland and is, her views certainly are for an independent Scotland. Uh, haven't seen much of Mind You in the last year or so because um, obviously the question time has taken a different format, but maybe she'll be on again soon. But anyway, so Lady, uh, this is, uh, is entitled, it's actually an article from um, September's Good Housekeeping. And the title is I Never Gave Up on My Dream. 
And sort of the headline is her books have sold more than 17 million copies and been translated into 40 languages. Yet crime writer Val McDermott will never settle. She talks to Joanne Finney about the challenges of writing and singing with her literally rock, literary, literary rock band. She's just quite, um, quite a lady. Maybe you've read some of her books, Ratha. I know you're, you like she's, crime. Yes, yeah, she's wearing the blood and things like that, isn't hmm? she? She's quite, she, on the TV programme, wearing the blood. She oh, yes, uh, yeah. Right, not many writers can say they've graced the stage of both the Hay Festival and Glastonbury, but Val McDermott isn't your average author. Often dubbed the Queen of Crime, Val has written more than 40 books, selling in excess of 17 million copies. She also performs regularly at, as the front woman the fun-loving crime writers, a rock band made up of six authors. Born in Kirkcaldy um, on the east coast of Scotland, Val was the first student from a Scottish state school to study English at St Hilda's College, Oxford. After university, she trained as a journalist and in 1987 published her first crime novel, Report for Murder, which launched her career. She's best known for the series featuring um, clinical psychologist Dr. Tony Hill and detective Carol Jordan. The first book featuring the pair, The Mermaids Singing, won the Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger in 1995. And along with the second, The Wire in the Blood, was the basis of the ITV series starring Robson Green. She's also a co-founder of the Thixon Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival, and her crime novel, 1979, is the first of a new series which features reporter Ali Burns and has all the trademark qualities of Val's best book. It's um, compulsive, gritty and firmly rooted in the social politics of its time and setting. Now, Val is 66 um, and she lives in Edinburgh with her wife, academic Joe Sharp, and has a grown-up son, Cameron. And she says, I wanted to write from the age of nine when I discovered you could get paid money for writing books. I used to love the Shelley Stories series by Eleanor um, Brent Dyer. And I remember in one of the books, a character uh, gets a letter from her publisher that has a check in it. That was the dawning of the light for me. I come from a working class background and I was very aware that people like me didn't become writers. I knew you had to have a proper job to fall back on, so I went to university and got myself into journalism. Many of the anecdotes set in the newsroom in my new book are my own. When I started at the Daily Record, there were only three women reporters in the newsroom. We weren't allowed to work together because they thought we'd sit in the corner and swap knitting patterns. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I got uh, sent on a lot of stories about miracle babies and weddings, and it was only when I got posted by another paper that I started to take it to be taken seriously and was sent to cover a murder trial. I also started writing fiction as soon as I graduated. I thought after three years of a degree um, at Oxford, I ought to be writing the great English novel. I sent my first attempt off to every publisher I could find in the Writers and Artists yearbook, and everybody sent it back, almost by return of post. It was awful. Call no man your master. My dad firmly believed in that. The message I grew up with was that I was as good as anybody else. And I had that in the back of my head from being quite young. 
and I suppose it gave me a conviction that I shouldn't give in. <clears throat> My first book to be published, Report for Murder, took me two years to write, all on Monday afternoons. I worked on a Sunday newspaper by then and Monday was my day off. Everyone else was at their work so I could pretty much guarantee getting peace um, and I just wrote. When I started out I thought plot was my weakest point so I devoted a lot of time to becoming a better storyteller. There weren't many writing um, courses around in those days so I did my DIY version. I took apart the plots of books from, where writers, from writers I admired from Jane Austen to Margaret Atwood, figuring out how they did it. <clears throat> the process of putting sentences on sentence is what I love most, but there are times when it's hellish. I ended up writing the final section of my novel, A Place of Execution, three or four times, and I remember sitting in my editor's office and bursting into tears, saying I couldn't do it. Bless her. She's very supportive, but she turned to me and said, you say this every time. I'm not an early writer. I start the day with a, cu a, cu um, a couple of cups of coffee and go to my desk around 10 a.m. I don't think I've ever written a decent sentence before 11 a.m. And I tend to write in short chunks, 20 minutes at a time. Then I stop and do something else. At some point, I will have gone for a walk or, as I find, it's a very good way to clear the log jams in my brain. I usually finish a series um, because the characters have stopped speaking to me. By the time I wrote the last uh, of the Tony Hill and Carol Jordan series, I'd come to the point where I didn't know what fresh things I had to say. That's not to say they'll never return, and certainly my character DCI, Karen Prairie, is still very much alive in my head, and it's like having friends you haven't seen for a while. But when you catch up, it's just like old times. The best writing advice I've been given is also applicable to life. Don't keep trying to make the first chapter perfect. Just keep faring um, ahead, uh, forward, and make it as good as you can on the day and move on. That's a good motto, isn't it? I'm proudest of refusing to give up on my dream of being a writer. I was once asked for a six-word epigraph, um, and mine was, they said I couldn't do it. It's also about proving myself to myself, and I can do what I set out to do. There's definitely still more to achieve. I'm deeply distrustful of people who say they're pleased with their latest book. I think if you're not pushing to do better, why bother? What I've learned from my partner, Joe, is to always keep communicating. We never stop talking. I'm lucky. My partner is also my best friend. So being together during the lockdowns was not an enormous hardship. Spending time with my gang of friends would always bring a smile to my face. And what makes me laugh is the spontaneous, when somebody tells you something that's happened to them and you suddenly see the funny side. In my band, the fun-loving crime writers, some of the stuff Mark Billingham and the other authors come up out with makes me howl. Uh, 1979 is due out on the 19th of August. So, yes, I do quite enjoy our books, I have to say. Quite gory. Hmm? Some of them are quite gory, are they not? Well, they are, but they're not as bad as somebody else. Like Karen Rose's books are seriously gory. Yeah, no, they're not. They're definitely no. There's there is a level. <laughs> <laughs> I find this wee article. Um, it sort of relates to the time we're in. It's a uh, Susan Kalman. Smell was my superpower. Now I can't trust my nose. 
She says, I've always had a very keen sense of smell. In fact, for most of my life, it was my superpower. I could identify milk that was on the turn before anyone else. And I was able to locate damp in a house in a matter of minutes. A niche power, I'll grant you. I'm not ashamed to say that I was excessively proud of my olfactory gifts and reveled in the way things smelled. I would walk along the street like Hannibal Lecter, nose in the air, senses all a tingle. The downside of having such abilities is that I was, and am, constantly worried about how I smell. So from an early age, I would douse myself in some fancy, fancy water on a regular basis with varying degrees of success. Grew up in the 1980s when you may recall there was a fashion for such heavy scents with names as opium and poison. They weren't subtle. The fragrance would arrive in a room several minutes before the person wearing it did and would linger in the atmosphere for hours thereafter. My main memory of those times are the many, many migraines caused, but at the time these were not recognised symptoms and I will never know for certain. It was quite a shock and at first I thought I'd simply bought a defective batch of fabric softener. Take my laundry seriously, you see, and have a range of liquids and softeners that I usually mix and match to make the perfect fragrance. Luckily, I quickly regained my, both my senses and my ability to enjoy food was unaffected. But my ability to smell, while still functioning and just as strongly as ever, had changed. Things that used to smell wonderful were now repulsive. I would smell gas or garlic or sewage all the time. I couldn't trust my own nose to confirm whether or not something was nice. And most annoyingly, my own perfume suddenly became revolting to me. I found my ba myself back at square one, but this time in my search for a perfume, I was searching on two fronts. My fear of trying something new and the fact that I could no longer trust the veracity of my own sense of smell. Quickly discovered that floral scents had the, the most visceral effect and immediately made me vomit. Hilariously, I found that while hugging my wife and smelling her shampoo, it's okay though, we've been together a while and the fact that she made me physically sick is fine. I don't know how that works. <laughs> After a process of elimination, I realised that the citrus notes were the only one I could tolerate and I phoned a Joe Malone cologne, lime basil and mandarin that didn't turn my stomach and I rather loved. I rather took for granted my fabulous superpower, but I never will again. My, my sense of smell is gradually returning to normal and I can't wait until I'm back to my best. Soon I'll be snuffing, sniffing everything again like a supercharged bisto kit. So I hope you enjoyed that. Now we're going to have our song of the week and it's from Paul Simon and it's me and Hulu down by the school yard and we're going back to school very soon. She ran to the police station When the papa found out He began to shout And he started the investigation It's against the law It was against the law Oh, what did mama saw? It was against the law Who did mama look down And spit on the ground Every time my name gets mentioned 
Papa said, oh, if I get that boy, I'm gonna stick him in the house of detention. Well, I'm on my way. I don't know where I'm going. I'm on my way. I'm taking my time, but I don't know where. Goodbye to Rose and the Queen of Corona. See me and Julio down by the schoolyard. See me and Julio down by the schoolyard. student days I can very much remember a new TV programme coming out on a Sunday night and I was at my sister's house in London and basically took the train back to Essex afterwards so just read about it um, so ITV's new adaption of H.E. Bates Darling Buds of May novels due on our screen this autumn has Bradley Walsh in David Jason's old role as Pop Larkin with Bridgerton's Sabrina Bartlett as Mariette, and the role, it's the role that made a star of Catherine Zeta-Jones, who went on to marry Michael Douglas, and I think that she did make a comment that the reason their marriage was so successful in real life was they had a big house so they could stay at opposite ends of the house without killing each other. It's a very successful marriage. Right, so more than 60 years after they were written. The stories set in rural Kent are as funny and heartwarming as ever and ITV has said previously that their most requested repeat was for Darling Buds of May. So I just thought I'd read a little bit out uh, about it and uh, basically it came onto our screens in 1991 and it reached the top of the ratings very quickly. So the series was a rating success, its feel-good factor during economic recession, often noted as the reason uh, whilst Yorkshire television classified it as a drama, audience have generally considered it to be a comedy drama. Now, it is one of these programmes, some of the people would have said that the reason it was a success, nothing much happened in it, but beautiful scenery. The first episode broke a British broadcasting record becoming the first instance of a new series topping the national ratings beating the soap opera Coronation Street. 
also an ITV production on the night, and also on a Sunday night. This came as a shock to producers, although they had been hopeful of good ratings due to dull weather and the belief that people would be looking for something to lift their spirits following the end of the Gulf War. Jason attributed the series' popularity to the public wanting a more wholesome, inclusive, inoffensive viewing option at a time when violence on television was increasing. And this is one of the reasons he decided to take the role. The, ser the series generated an upsurge in the sales of H.E. Bates novels. Okay, and some other information about the Darling Buds of May. So there were different books written. Darling Buds of May as a book was 1958. A Breath of French Air, 1959. When the Greenwoods Laugh, 1960. And Oh to Be in England, 1963. And then a little bit of What You Fancy, 1970. And the first novel in the series was originally adapted to the screen in 1959 as The Mating Game with Debbie Reynolds and Tony Randall as Marriott and Charlie. The fifth novel, A Little Bit of What You Fancy, was never adapted for television, but it was adapted into a six-part series by Eric Pringle for BBC Radio with Jason and Ferris reprising their roles, first airing in 1996. Um, so I, can, I remember saying to my sister that basically... Watched everybody watched this program in her house, and then I went to the train, and you sort of felt your Monday morning had started at eight o'clock on a Sunday night. And she said that once I went to the railway station, she started getting all the children's school uniforms ready. <laughs> her weekend was also over, um. So it's just one of those programs, and the fact that they're remaking it does make you feel old. I'm sure some of you watched it as well. Yeah. It was a favourite. Mm -hmm. Did you watch the Darling Buds of mm -hmm. Me? Yeah, not really, no. no. It was maybe. a real favourite in our house. Uh -huh. yeah. It was really a modern version of the Waltons, but on ITV. Well, I suppose to, yeah. And it then, because the Gulf War had been on, it, it was sort of soft English television, nice countryside and all the rest of it. It was just what the doctor ordered at the time. But the fact that they're bringing it back also, you know, I mean, the original one, you know, you sort of think, well, why are they making another one? But they obviously feel that there's sufficient demand and that was, what, 30 years ago when that was last aired, so it's time for a new one. <laughs> they brought back to the James Herriot series. Yes, and it's been a big... the original one, actually, uh -huh. they brought back. Uh -huh. Oh, with it all creatures great spot, uh -huh. It's on on a Sunday night in Channel 5 yeah. now. Uh -huh. And it was very big viewing figures mm -hmm. for them as well, so... Oh, it's you? a lot of uh, sort of innocent viewing, really, in a way, uh -huh. isn't it? That people like you can watch it in front of Granny. <laughs> okay, right. Um, good housekeeping again. Um, and I think this is something probably we've all got in mind: the whole issue about climate change. Um, and this is an article by um, a lady called Emily Martin. Um, and she's given us five things you could do to help fight climate change. And there's also an article here, is using the internet bad for the planet? So we'll do both. Right, um, uh, it's the environmental issue that for the majority of us are most worried about. So what can we do to help tackle global warming? Climate change is one of the environmental challenges most likely to keep us awake at night. And according to two thirds of a good housekeeping readers, and, are, and we are now the only ones who are worried. 
The government recently announced tougher uh, plans to cut emissions of the greenhouse gases that contribute to global warming, including carbon dioxide, and this is to be done by 2035. If you want to do your bit, start by reducing your own carbon footprint. Total carbon emissions produce as a produced as a result of things we buy and do. And here's five things you can do. Some of them are quite simple, really. Eat fruit and vegetable that has been grown in the UK. When we buy fresh UK-grown produce that's in season, the meals on our plates will have clocked up fewer food, food miles and lower carbon emissions than items that have been flown thousands of miles to fill supermarket shelves. Number two. Use your car less if at all possible. Road transport made up around one-fifth of the UK's total greenhouse gas emissions before the coronavirus pandemic caused us to travel less. So the government's Climate Change Committee has said we need to reduce miles travelled in our cars by 9% by 2035. 9% should not be difficult, you would think. Anyway, it depends obviously how reliant you are on your car. Number three, buy less intensively farmed meat. The Climate Change Committee says we would all need to consume just over one-third, that's 35%, less meat and dairy by 2050. The deforestation involved in growing soy to feed intensively farmed animals contributes to increasing levels of carbon in the atmosphere. And I believe cows do as well. They do. Mm -hmm. do. Yeah. They're supposed to, but... Mm -hmm. And, and central yes. heating systems as well, let yeah. say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, switch to uh, a green energy tariff, maybe it's a good um, title for the next one. The total carbon emissions that come from heating and powering our homes tops the list of contributors to climate change. Ahead of driving our cars, taking flights and producing food. You switch independently verified green accreditation scheme can tell you just how eco-friendly an energy tariff is before you sign up for it. Number five, make your home more energy efficient. The Plan Home Improvements tool from Simply Energy Advice can help you come up with an energy efficient improvements plan. It estimates an approximate cost for each product and the likely saving on your energy bills. Find the total, and there's, there's actually a, a website here, um, simpleenergyadvice.org.uk, and then something simple, simple to remember, just even Google simple energy, you should be able to get the information. Right, um, so those are a few things we can think about doing. Um, and also then, what about using our internet? It may come as no surprise to learn that globally we spent double the amount of time online in 2020 than we did before the pandemic. Well, that's probably not surprising. While the surge in our online activity may have helped to keep us entertained, in touch, and for those whose kitchen table became their office, working throughout lockdowns. It would also have been responsible for an increase in carbon emissions, and this is because our online activity requires power, not just the electricity needed to power and recharge our devices, but also the energy to run the huge facilities packed with web servers, and they're called data centres, that are now the nerve centre of the internet. Unless that electricity comes from renewable sources, it releases greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So smarter ways to use tech. 
While our online activity accounts for just 3.7% of global greenhouse emissions, says Matthew Forshaw, Senior Lecturer in Data Science at Newcastle University, there are some simple changes to the way we use the internet that will still be beneficial for the environment. Rather than watching high-definition video by default, consider what quality you need and adjust, he suggests. Watching in standard definition is estimated to reduce emissions of video streaming by up to 90%, and that's quite, that's quite a big percentage. And the carbon footprint of web calls can be reduced 90, by 96% if you switch off video. Dr. Forshaw goes on to point out, though, that video conferencing should still be a more eco-friendly option than meeting face-to-face. For example, if so, doing so would involve significant travel, and I would say particularly air travel. Um, Annie Stevens, Associate Director of the Carbon Trust Equisys, and while he says that everything we can do is to reduce our carbon footprint is important, he adds, watching a one-hour video over the internet has a smaller carbon footprint than eating a beef burger and is 40 times smaller than driving a car 15 miles, though it's still significant but relatively small. So there are lots of little things we can do to help. <clears throat> oh, yeah. And over to you. Mm-hmm. I, was, I find this wee article, was just thinking people had cleared out over COVID and they might have, and lockdown and things, and they might have found a few things we thought this might, might uh, inspire some people. It was on BBC. Do you suspect you may have a possible fortune hidden away in the back of your attic or sitting on your mantle? If so, Antiques Roadshow wants to hear from you. The popular BBC series is set to record in Northern Ireland in September and wants to hear from people in advance. They'll be filming at the Ulster Folk Museum just outside Belfast, but on a closed set with an invited audience only due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Members of the public are asked to submit their cardboard bargains or treasured family possessions via the show's website. Successful applicants will then be invited to attend a recording session where they will share their items with an expert who will be able to reveal more about the craftsmanship, history and provenance of each piece, as well as the all-important value. Series editor Robert Murphy said the team were looking forward to returning to Northern Ireland. We love visiting Northern Ireland as we find such amazing items. Last few trips to Castle Ward and Stormont, we've uncovered items with an incredible history, such as a diving helmet used to build the Titanic, a diary of Shackleton's trip to the Antarctic, and a collection of George Best memorabilia. We can't wait to see what long-lost treasures and family heirlooms might be lurking in the attic or gathering dust on a shelf. Returning for her 14th year at the helm, Fiona Bruce acknowledged that the team's success at recording the show under challenging circumstances in 2020 and encouraged older encouraged people to apply to be a part of the programme. We were thrilled that we managed to make a series of the Antiques Roadshow last summer despite all the difficulties of uh, filming during the pandemic, she said. Hopefully things will be easier this summer, though life not be back to normal by the time we start filming. So if you find some if you have an item that you'd like to bring along to the roadshow, please do not get in t- to please do get in touch with us beforehand and here's hoping for a summer of great finds. Well would you believe I went to the Antics Road show when it was in Castle Ward way back in twenty nineteen. 
and I took along two things. I took I'd, I'd always loved a little, um, I suppose a bit of vase you would call it. It's only about it's only about you know three or four inches high, um, but I always loved Japanese type things, and this was a gorgeous piece of Japanese pottery. So I took it along, and I was delighted. I spoke to the expert um and she was great and she loved it and hadn't seen one like it and um it was a piece of satsuma and um, she said it had been made by one of the top the top satsuma um what would you call it producers hmm? potters names potters uh, uh, king something or other i can't remember who it was she said it was one of the top things and she said she hadn't actually recorded um a piece of satsuma earlier in the day and should have recorded this but when I saw the piece that she recorded it was absolutely it was about what, 18 inches high a big round piece of satsuma where it was absolutely absolutely fabulous mm-hmm. but anyway I arrived it was there's a little chip in it um and she said it was worth 800 pounds and I said to her, well if I had that repaired um restored what would it be worth? And she says, well, you need to get a good restorer, which is fair enough. And she said, it'd be worth um, between twelve and £1,500. I'm your friend. Your ma- <laughs> Ruth has just said she's my friend. Well, did you get it repaired? I haven't got it repaired yet because I haven't found out... Appropriate person. Because I wouldn't want to get it badly repaired because it would dam- damage the, yeah. the, the, the original value. The other thing I took along one was a picture an oil painting i don't know i painting watercolor that had been painted um and i'm sitting here frantically trying to remember the man's name but anyway it doesn't matter um that my aunt and uncle my father's sister and her husband bought my mother and father as a wedding present mm-hmm. and they bought it from a gallery in belfast called rodman's i don't know whether anybody remembers them i think they used to be in round corn market or something somewhere I don't remember. Them. Yeah, they've gone a long, long time. I remember them, um, but they haven't been about for a long, long time. So I thought, well, I always love it because it's 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 um, a river, um, and all the uh, the buildings all around it, and it's all in gorgeous shades of reds and oranges and yeah. um, beiges and browns and things. It's an absolutely gorgeous picture, um, and I absolutely loved it. So I took it along, and I was speaking to. Um, Actually, two of the um, valuers, because the picture line is always very long. So when they come to the <laughs> the end, the, some of the others come and help out. And I discovered the artist was um, not particularly well known artist, uh, but certainly was an uh, English watercolorist. Because I thought it was just a rubbish Irish. Yes, oh, know, uh, wasn't, yes. wasn't enough. Um, uh, but uh, and he had been um, a pupil. Um, with Turner but my picture was worth £300 but I love it so I wasn't good. but finding that out was just so so uh, so yes, nice you know yes finding out mm-hmm. just a bit more mm-hmm. I'm still your friend mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Too much. it sounds good <laughs> I love it right so really just a few things on just the Daily Mail from Saturday the 14th House of Lords uh, pays tribute to Prince Philip and then claims £46,000 for taking part. It's a civil service, I'm afraid, and that's the way it works. Peers claimed more than £46,000 from taxpayers on their day of tribute to the Duke of Edinburgh 
despite this 65 taking part. On April the 12th, members of the House of Lords paid respects to the the <laughs> paid respects to the Prince of Prince Philip, and the right is emerged that 162 peers claimed their daily allowance for their special sitting, and this amounts to 323 pounds for personal attendance and 162 pounds for virtual. So, in other words, some of them did it. I assume by Zoom. The special sitting lasted five and a half hours with 65 members participating. A Freedom of Information request submitted by Sky News found that 97 peers who claimed a daily allowance uh, did not speak in the chamber uh, to pay tribute to Prince Philip. Of those actually present, 14 were deputy chairmen of committees, meaning they can deputise for the Lord Speaker if necessary. The remainder were either members of a Lord's Committee or those holding a front bench role for their parties. Darren Hughes, Chief Executive of the Electoral Reform Society, said too many appear to see the Lords as a kind of cash cow. Right now, the Lords looks more like a private members club than the effective scrutiny body Britain deserves. A spokesman for the House of Lords says that any rules breaches would be investigated under the Code of Conduct Procedure. So just to highlight there that peers claimed more than £46,000 from taxpayers on their day of tributes to the Duke of Edinburgh. Okay. And then something else here. Amazon. Now, I have to say, I, I do think Amazon's a bit of a mixed blessing. Uh, I saw an umbrella in a shop in Newry and liked it. And I did say to myself that I'd pay up to £15 for it. And I went home and looked it up on Amazon, and they were about fifty pounds five zero. Um, so I have to say, my experience of Amazon is it can be cheap, but don't always just go there first. Now, what they're saying here is, why DIY am enthusiasts should steer clear of Amazon. So Amazon is the most expensive shop for DIY tools compared with leading hardware stores, which magazine has found a basket of eighteen popular tools cost £206 from the online retailer and one right so just re repeat that so home base and screw fix came second and third at 163 and 165 with tool station and wicks making up the rest of the list consumer champion which also found huge price differences between individual items in the basket which included a handsaw toolbox and masking tape and the prices were tracked over the year to May 2021 at all six chains. A Bosch multi-construction TCT drill bit that cost an average of £4.11 at B&Q was 9 30 at Amazon. But a survey of 6,000 shoppers also by which found that Amazon received five stars for value for money. Respondents were also asked to rate their experiences and factors, including product range and quality and customer service. Screwfix and tool station came top each earning customer scores of 82% and five-star ratings across all categories. Amazon was third with a customer score of 77%. Nine in ten said they were pleased with the product selection. And nearly everyone was satisfied with delivery service. Harry Rose, which magazine editor, said, Our analysis shows the best places to buy DIY items combine great customer service with good value for money and that shopping around for the best prices could make a startling difference to your bill. So 
So a spokesman for Amazon said sellers set their own product prices in our store and we have policies to help ensure sellers are pricing their products competitively. So there you go. Amazon prices can be a bit up and down and they're saying really B&Q, you'll pay roughly a, a quarter less if you can be bothered going out. But I know it is sometimes just handier just to click and add that screwdriver or other piece of life-saving equipment to your basket and get it delivered uh, you know, in the next couple of days. Right, so now back over to Heather. Right. Um, I don't know about the rest of you, but I have... I don't know how many scams I keep getting um, on my phone, either by text or by calls and email, etc., etc. Um, and it's very easy to be convinced that they're legitimate. Um, so this is just a little um, article about don't fall for these scams. Um, and it's whether charging for fake vaccines, offering non-existent benefits, or sending useless messages, scammers are using confusion surrounding COVID-19 to fleece millions of pounds and valuable personal data uh, from their unsuspecting victims. Figures released in March this year revealed that over the first 12 months of the pandemic, you're not going to believe this figure, more than 34.5 million had been stolen in England, Wales and Northern Ireland alone. I mean, that's a colossal amount of money. Oh, it is. Um, then, like a pound for each person, sort of fifty p for each person. Yeah. Then in May, um, the National Cyber Security Centre announced that it had taken down more scams in the past year than it had in the previous three years combined. It found forty-three fake NHS COVID nineteen apps, and an uptick in the number uptake in the number of scams using NHS branding. And here are the latest scams to watch out for. Fake PPE sellers. Scammers are trying to self, uh, sell protective equipment, hand gel and other cleaning staples that never arrived. Action Fraud has recorded reports of phising emails made to look like they come from the World Health Organization or the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention. Encouraging recipients to hand over email passwords and bank details or open malicious attachments. Now, the next one I have loads of. We have a parcel for you. An increasing number of scammers are using text messages to alert their victims to non-existent packages apparently being held until postage or import duties are paid. Such messages usually contain a link that, when clicked, will ask for deep bank details. Needless to say, any money withdrawn from your account goes to the scammer and not the postal service. And in fact, I picked up a friend of mine today, had got one of them. She didn't actually realise what it was. She did click the link, but at least had the wit not to actually give any bank details out. But she couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, and there's loads of these that come from all sorts of carriers. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Texts containing links to claim forms promising government grants in return for your credit or debit card details are becoming commonplace, with HMRC telling Sky News that it has detected 275 coronavirus-related financial scams since March and has had more than 250 web pages taken down. HMRC is also aware 
of an automated phone call scam that tells you HMRC is filing a lawsuit against you <laughs> and to press one to speak to a case uh, worker to make a payment. Never do this. The other one I've had from HRC is telling me I'm getting a refund, uh-huh. which is not them at all. But um, you, yes, basically, if you have an app, you're better working within the app. Yeah. You, you like to think the app is secure because you're sort of opening it up. The other thing that I've had, I've had phone calls about this, numerous phone calls about this, and it comes through as an English phone number. Mm-hmm. And it's allegedly from the National Crime Agency telling my, me my national insurance card has been suspended because of fraudulent activity. Uh-huh. And all they're looking for, and I know somebody who actually, uh, and it's, it's, one, it's very frustrating because it's one of these recordings. Mm-hmm. So you can't actually, say, get lost. Uh-huh. I mean, I have been quite rude to some of these people ringing yeah. me. Um, because they really are dreadful. Um, um, but somebody actually pressed the button to just see what happened. And I think they had quite an interesting conversation. <laughs> so they're actually well, they're basically looking for information. What your details? What uh-huh. your bank account? Yeah. And in fact, they actually asked this guy for his his national insurance number. Uh-huh. So if he was ringing from there, stay safe. <laughs> Never click links in emails or texts, or give your password or PIN to any organisation. Watch out for spelling mistakes or links that clearly don't lead to a genuine website. But you better not click on the link at all. I mean. Look up the apparent sender's detail on the web rather than using details in the message and call its customer services number. And on a website, check the web address because if you check the web address, it's really something really obscure. It's not generally the person that you think it is. Um, and, and also ensure there's a padlock icon in the address bar. If you received a scam text, forward it to 7726. This is free and will bring it to the attention of your mobile service provider. And if you happen to have given your personal or financial details to a scammer, get in touch with your bank immediately. Yeah, if you can get through. <laughs> I mean, they're dreadful. Mm-hmm. You know, even people, you know, people come on saying they're from Microsoft. Like, oh. are Microsoft going to ring? Uh, but I've had them on and saying that um, there's a the bug in the system and they wanted me to pay what twenty five pounds or what mm-hmm. it was to get it fixed. I'm thinking, really? Mm-hmm. Microsoft are ringing how many million exactly. million customers oh. to tell exactly. them this? And anyway, do they not do backups or updates for free? <laughs> you couldn't be up to them. Yeah. Right, well our hour is up and um, it's very nice to have been back with you. There will have been a few lumps and bumps along the way because we have new machinery. I'm sure you're too polite to notice <laughs> that things may have started and stopped. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm sure you could make the general gist of what was going on about Prince of Philip and the, the House of Lords and scams and so on. So I'll say from me, goodbye from John Harkness. <laughs> and lovely to be back with you. Um, hope we we'll see you soon, Heather Loudon. And take care of yourselves. Nice to be here. I haven't been here before. Rita Flavelle from Sorapkins. And we'll leave you with some nice music from Paul Simon. All the best, everybody. I met my old lover 
so glad to see me I just smiled And we talked about some old times And we drank ourselves some beers Still crazy after all these years Oh, still crazy I'm not the kind of man who tends to socialize I seem to lean on old familiar ways And I ain't no fool for love songs that whisper in my ears Still crazy Still great. 